Good morning. Um, we are beginning a new series today, which is Soundtrack for the Summer. And soundtracks are really, really important because they provide, they set the scene, they set the context and our expectations. So it's really important that we have the right soundtrack. And I will demonstrate this now. If I could have the first track. Again, technical difficulties. What's happening? If I'm, if I'm your hero, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe fixing a bomb. I'm basically saving your lives, right? Next track. What's happening? The same thing. I'm, it's just me up here. We don't know what's happened, but we know something sad has happened. And you're all on my side. Can we have the next track? There's someone who's coming out behind me. It's, and, the, and the next one. Oh, this was actually supposed to be the music that he played when I came on. That's, this is just setting the scene, because that's the kind of guy I am. Yeah. So, soundtracks are really important because they provide a context. And that's what we're doing this morning. We're looking at Psalm 8. We're reading it through. And we're trying to, to get a soundtrack for the summer because it's this Psalm 8 that we want to live by. It provides the truth, the narrative. Um, it sets the scene. Another example um, of how soundtracks are so important. A few years ago, um, Ruth and I went to Thailand. We went to visit my sister Emily, who lived there for five years. And in Thailand, they like two genres of film. One is bean and the other is horror. <laughs> it's, there's nothing in the middle. It's Mr. Bean or it's horror. Um, and the skyline, which is like the underground, but in the sky, um, it had just opened. And because it was new, they had um, adverts with, it was like videos on, in the train. And so these adverts would be rolling all the time and, and probably half of the adverts were for films. Um, and Johnny English had just come out so a lot of the adverts were Johnny English, kind of, and Johnny English is basically Mr. Bean pretending to be a spy. So th there were those adverts, and then the other kind of two-thirds of the film adverts were horror, and I hate horror. Like, it messes me up for, like, a, a couple of weeks. Um, so I can't cope with it. But because there was no sound, it wasn't at all terrifying. It could have been an advert for some kind of... Um, remedy to gum-wasting disease or something. It could have been anything. But because there was no music to set the scene, to set tension, to put you on edge, it was kind of like, well, it's just someone with bad teeth. It's not scary at all. So the soundtrack is really important. Um, so we've read through this psalm, and what I want to do is just pick out um, really kind of one theme within it. Verse 3, where it says, When I consider the heavens, the works of your fingers, the, moons, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, then it says, What is man that you are mindful of him? When Dave read that, we probably just brushed over, You set in place the moon and the stars, and we didn't really give it much thought. But for the next few minutes, I would like to give it some thought. Because... It turns out the moon and the stars are pretty awesome. And a way of observing or, or understanding one thing is to observe its effects. So you, so you can observe the effects that something has on the world around it, the people around them, and you can 
ascertain some knowledge of that thing. So we can look at the stars, and if God placed them, if God created them, then it has to say something about his nature. So here are, the, this is a, it's not really come out here, but here are the three brightest objects in the night sky. Do you know what they are? The one in the middle. Sorry? Flick says the evening star. That's embarrassing. It's the moon. <laughs> um, the moon, which is just quarter of a million miles away, which is like, which is like in your face in kind of space terms. So that's very close. It's unsurprising that it's the brightest. Does anyone know what the second brightest object in the night sky is? Venus is correct. Venus, which is 25 million miles away. So it's our kind of closest neighbor. It's just 25 million miles away. That's a bit like, in space terms, it's a bit like being on the tube and just having someone's armpit in your face. It's mega close. So it's not really surprising that it's um, so bright. What about the third brightest object in in the sky? No one? It is. It's Jupiter. And Jupiter is pretty awesome just because it's so flipping massive. It's the largest planet um, in our solar system. It's so massive that if you collected all of the other planets in our solar system and squashed them together and got all of the mass from all of the other planets, um, Jupiter would still be two and a half times more massive than all of that. It's, It's big. And it's 365 million miles from Earth. And yet from that distance... We can see it. 365 million miles and we can see it from Earth. That's insane, is it not? Just me. Um, (laughs) But we are going to stay here, so, you know, if you're not with me, I already lost you, it doesn't matter. Um, Anyway, so let me tell you a little bit about, because this is quite interesting. Those three things, those three objects, brightest things in the night sky, none of them have, none of them are a source of light. None of them produce light. So all of this light is reflected, and it's reflected from the sun. The sun is 93 million miles away from us. It's like, I I wrote it down, I worked it out. It's 458 million miles away from Jupiter, and then it has to come 365 million miles reflected back to us. So the light has traveled 823 million miles to come to us. Is that not mental? It's... It's like, how do you get your head around that? And let me tell you a little bit about where that light has come from, because this says something about God, I think. So, so Jupiter, 365 million miles away. All of a sudden, God isn't kind of like that Care Bear kind of figure. He's a little bit more serious. He's a little bit big. But the sun, this is where, um, this is where light comes from. So we're 93 million miles away from the sun. Um, it takes just eight minutes to get to, get to us, the sunlight, um, which means that well, it's because light, uh, the light is traveling at the speed of light, which is 5.88 trillion miles, which is like just a stupid number. It doesn't really matter, but it's, it's so big. But because it's traveling so fast, the sun reaches us in just under eight minutes. The surface of the sun is 10,000 degrees Celsius. And, and God created it. And we go, oh God, he's, he's nice. He's kind of cuddly. He created the sun and it's 10,000 degrees. 
But the, the, the light on the surface, it takes ages to come out to the surface because they're kind of photons that bounce around, perhaps even indefinitely. But at the center of the sun, there is a furnace which is about 10, um, the power of 10 billion nuclear bombs and the temperature is 15 million degrees Celsius. That's just like, is that not crazy? And what's happening is, I'll explain what happens. Basically, hydrogen, which is the most abundant element in the universe, um, we all know that mass attracts mass, that's gravity. We don't really, I say we, scientists who, who are clever don't really understand exactly why. But mass attracts mass. And the sun, which is pretty massive, it's almost a million times the mass of the Earth. It's 960,000 times the mass of the Earth. It's so big that it's got so much hydrogen that the hydrogen is getting sucked into the core through gravity. And because it's so massive, the hydrogen is being squashed and squashed and squashed and squashed. And then under that immense pressure, eventually the hydrogen, four hydrogen cells or atoms fuse together and they create helium. And that is hydrogen fusion. And that releases a huge amount of energy. And that's what, that's what um, heats the sun up. That's pretty amazing. It's just because it's so massive. And in fact, it's so massive that that, that continues. So then hydrogen, we get hydrogen fusion, and it continues to heavier and heavier and heavier elements. But fortunately, it's not so heavy that um, it creates a lot of iron, because iron is such a dense element. I'm going somewhere with this, by the way. Um, <laughs> iron is such a dense element that it's endothermic, which means it takes energy from, from the atoms or, uh, from around it to create iron. And because it, it's, it takes energy, iron is sometimes considered a star killer. So we're kind of fortunate that it's just the right size that it's going to continue burning for ages. But it is massive and it's fierce. Some of you may be thinking, it doesn't create iron. And if, if we need huge mass and pressure to create heavy elements, where has all the iron come from? Good question. <laughs> I shall answer you. Who here has a ring on their finger or even even uh, a watch. If you have a ring that's like silver or just a heavy metal, silver, gold, platinum, this is older than our solar system because there is nothing in our solar system that is big enough or has the force to create it, which means that the metal on my finger is more than four and a half billion years old. That's Again, nuts. <laughs> That's what I want you to take from this, from this morning. It's just nuts. Um, so it's older than 4.5 billion years. And it, it came from a supernova, so a massive star exploding. The kind of forces required to make the metal that's on your finger are astronomically large. It is massive. So this is the God we say put the stars in their place. These are the forces. I don't want to tell you about too many stars, um, mainly because, <laughs> because as I was preparing, I was telling Ruth, and she was just like, seriously, some people just don't care. But it's important <laughs> because, because it's the soundtrack to our summer. Let me just tell you about one other star. It's called Canis Majoris, and it's one of the largest stars that's ever been found. And it is massive. Um, so if you shrunk, if you shrunk a, the Earth to the size of a golf ball, um, uh, how big do you think, oh, all I've told you is it's massive, you're not going to get it, but how big do you think 
Canis Majoris might be. As a little clue, um, the sun contains, if you, if you got lots of Earths, you could fit 960,000 Earths inside the sun. That's how big the sun is. Canis Majoris is a bit bigger than the sun. It can contain, this is true, this is the number, seven quadrillion Earths, <laughs> which is just like, huh, really? So Canis Majoris can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside. If, you were to lie, if I were to put the Earth here, and then Canis Majoris started here, where do you think it would go from here to the edge of the star? I shall tell you because, you know, I can tell not getting a lot of anything back. Um, it would stretch to the edge of Wimbledon. It is absolutely huge. Here it is. This is Canis Majoris. Like the sun doesn't even feature. That's the sun. Just that pinprick in that little bit that's zoomed in. It is absolutely huge. Do you know what this is a picture of? It is. It's a picture of the Milky Way. I'll just talk about this very quickly. Um, if you were to travel for 26,000 years, that's a long time. Even if you're going slow, you're going to go a long way. If you travel for 26,000 years at the speed of light, which is 588 trillion miles, so if you went 5, 5, 5.88 trillion miles times 26,000, you would arrive at the center of our galaxy, the Milky, the Milky Way. Um, and there is a star. It's not really a star. It's called Sagittarius A. And if you look at, at a galaxy, it looks a little bit like this. The, the center is really, really bright. And that's because there's loads and loads of stars there. It's not because there's a super, super bright star. It's because at the center of the galaxy is a supermassive black hole. And that is a bit like our, what I was telling you about the sun. It's got so much mass that all the mass gets squeezed in, squeezed in, squeezed in, squeezed in, and then eventually it collapses on itself. We get a singularity, and there's basically so much mass that it, 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 it squeezes into nothing. And then that nothing, can, can, uh, so in our case, the Milky Way, I think it's 4.8 million solar masses. In the, so 4.8 million suns in zero space. And that's so dense that from, from 26,000 light years, which I, I wonder if I even worked out, that's 152 quadrillion miles. From 152 quadrillion miles, it's such a massive force that our sun rotates around it. That is a monumental force. And our God placed the stars in their place. Um, so, black holes, what I want to do now is just talk about very small things, because God is the God of the micro, but he's also of the macro, but he's also a God of the micro. Um, so this, oh, this is a picture of galaxies. So there's like, I don't know, like four, 400 billion stars in a galaxy, and there's like 100 billion galaxies in the universe that we know of. God's, God's pretty big. This is an atom. Now, do you know something interesting about an atom? Atoms are so small that you can't possibly see them. We know that. We haven't seen them. Um, that you can't see them because light waves are too big. So light waves just basically go right over an atom, so you can't see it. 
So the way scientists have zoomed in to see an atom is to fire electrons at it. And then judging by the angle that they bounce off and, and how soon they come back, you can determine where that atom exists in space, which is pretty clever. It's a little bit like us looking at space. We look at space, we contemplate the forces and the vastness, and that tells us something about our creator. So anyway, this is an atom. In the middle, you've got your, correct, protons and neutrons. And around the edge, you've got your electrons. Um, now, these are pretty tiny. To, to, in order to, um, to really have a little look at, an, at the nucleus, which is the protons and the neutrons in the middle, you have to blow it up pretty big. So if you blew up a single atom to the size of Wembley Stadium, so that's how big our, our atom now is, we could, we'd have to kind of skip um, out of the way of the electrons, which are spinning around mega fast. But if we, if we got through into the middle of the atom, we would see nothing there would be nothing. And then, if we looked very closely, we might be able to see something as small as a marble in the middle. Remember, this is in the middle of Wembley Stadium. So they've got the electrons whizzing around the outside, and in the middle, there is, an there is the nucleus, and it's the size of a marble. And that's where all the protons and neutrons are. And in that, um, in that nucleus, um, w scientists have now, you know, split the protons and they found quarks and electrons and they found lupins. But in that marble, it's, so all of that space, you might be thinking, if there's all of that space, why are things so hard? How can things have, have form? And it's because if you blew that nucleus up to the size of a, a one-foot square box, it would be pretty dense. In fact, it would, be so, it would be the equivalent of getting 6.2 billion cars, squashing them together and putting them into that one-foot box. That's how dense the, the, the middle of, the, of each atom is. That's a huge force. Again, it is our God who created this. And so when we ask the question, God who placed these things in motion... Who are we that you would consider us? He's a God of the infinite scale, but he's a God of the infinite detail. And these atoms are the things that create us. Every cell is made up of organic material, of, of elements. But have you ever considered, what is it that determined that some cells would form an eye? and other cells would form a leg or hair. So when you were created, you had two cells. You had the egg from your mother, you had the sperm from your father. And in those two cells was all of the detail, the trillions of lines of DNA that would form you, which is trillions and trillions of cells. And it is complex. Where, how does one cell decide, I, I think I should be an eye? And then another cell goes, I think he's got two eyes, so I should be a leg. I'll be a bone. It's all, it's all from the same stuff. It turns out there's this um, stuff called laminin. And laminin is the thing that tells a cell, you should be a leg, you should be a fingernail, and you should be a tongue, or you should form those things. It's laminin 
that um, determines what a cell should be. And it's also laminin that sticks all the cells together. And I would like to show you two pictures now. One is a picture of laminin, which we'll come to. The other is a picture of a black hole. There's a, 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 a black hole in the middle of um, a galaxy. There's a galaxy called the Whirlpool Galaxy, and it's perpendicular to us, which means that we can spy either right on top of it or right beneath it, but we can see, we can see it span. And scientists zoomed in, and they zoomed into the black hole in the middle. And this is the picture that they took. Now that could be, by chance, some kind of, I don't know, what's happening in the middle there. I don't think that in the middle of all black holes there is a crucifix form. But I do think that in the middle of every black hole, which all life circulates around, is the fingerprints and the DNA of our creator. And that is in the chaos, that is in the fury, in the huge forces, there is order and God ordained it. And then this is laminin, which um, holds all life together. Again, the largest forces in the universe to the cell that stitches us all together whether it's by chance or design, God's fingerprints, God's DNA, I think, is all over it. And that is what I want to leave you with. That, I think, is our soundtrack for the summer. And I think it's our soundtrack for life, actually. I think the truth is that we serve an absolutely awesome God who we cannot begin to contemplate. He's beyond our understanding. He created the sun that from 93 million, million miles can scorch the earth, but it's just right that it sustains life. And in the middle of it is a furnace 15 million degrees Celsius. He's a powerful God. And yet at the same time, he knits us together and he holds the atom in tension. A huge force that all life depends on. And so, as you go out this week, I hope that that soundtrack will be playing. You serve an awesome God. What are we that God would consider us? We are his creation. The same forces, the same passion, the same creativity that he put into the things we cannot comprehend, he put into us. And he looked at us and he said, you are good. That's the soundtrack for for the summer and that's the truth that I hope um, you contemplate and you live with um, not just for the summer but for the rest of your lives that is the God we serve let me pray for you and then um, what's the plan then we're going to take communion Father we thank you for how flipping awesome your creation is we thank you that we live at an exciting time when we can begin to understand a little bit more, though we recognize we understand next to nothing. And we thank you that in all of the mystery of life, whether it's the vastness of, of space or the intricate, minute detail of the stuff that holds us together, that there is a truth that you have made known to us, which is 
you are for us. And in a world, a universe of forces that we cannot comprehend, you have brought order. And so I pray for each of my friends here. I pray that this is the truth that would percolate, that we would begin to grapple with, that we would understand more of. And whether we can understand these cosmic numbers of trillions and quadrillions, I pray that everyone here would know this truth, that you are a God who created us, you're a God who is for us, and you are a God who loves us. And as we take communion, we remind ourselves of that truth. Amen.